0: Hi, I'm Dr. Jared, and welcome to the Plantastic Podcast, a show for plant killers, green thumbs, and everyone else in between. Listen along as I deconstruct the craft and practices of remarkable horticulturists so that you can better cultivate your plants and yourself. Let's grow. This episode of the Plantastic Podcast is brought to you by Baptisia australis, blue wild indigo. I'm a huge fan of the Fabaceae family, and Baptisia tops the list. This native plant rises with asparagus like spears in early spring to form a round mound of dense foliage. At the top, spires of flowers emerge and begin blooming in mid to late spring in a whole host of colors. Blue and purple are the most common. But numerous selections have been made for cultivars that have white, yellow, red, and even pink colors. Baptisia flowers have this fascinating pollination ecology. You see, as a single flower ages, it shifts from being male to being female. This later female stage of the bloom is also more nectar-rich. So what a bee will do is it will start with lower female flowers first because of that nectar reward that it will get. As a bee moves up the same stalk, the flowers progress to becoming more male. The bee gets fresh pollen deposited on its body from those male flowers. And then it moves to another plant, starting at the lower flowers where they, again, are more female and thus depositing the pollen. It's a beautiful example of coevolution. Now, once pollinated, the flowers will develop into bloated green seed pods that will eventually dry and turn black. And the seeds inside dehiss and rattle when shaken. In fact, there are reports that Native Americans gave their children these infructescens as rattles. And I like how the jet black seed pods help to extend interest in the winter until they either cut in the spring or tumble away in the stiff winds, helping to disperse the seed. Hardy in USDA zones 4 through 9, blue walled indigo is deep taprooted and thus very drought tolerant and the plants tend to be more resistant to deer damage. It holds some historical novelty as well. Baptisia comes from the Greek bapto, meaning to dip, because dyes used to be produced from this plant. The common name blue wild indigo comes from this plant's substitution for indigophora, which was true indigo. The British government contracted with southern colonial farmers to grow this plant, thus creating one of the first subsidy crops in America. You can find this plant and many more at your local garden center. Hey everyone, Dr. Jared here again, and welcome back to the Plantastic Podcast. First, I want to say thank you so much for the outpouring of support for this endeavor. Since I launched the first full episode with Caleb, I've gotten so much positive feedback, and I can't wait to hear more about how I can make this podcast even better. For this month's episode, I interviewed my good friend, Kim Shearer. Kim is a tree and shrub breeder at the Morton Arboretum, where she manages their new plant development program, and she serves as the Chicago Land Groves' Woody Plant Liaison. It's a program that she explains a little bit further in the episode. Kim advances the Arboretum's mission to make the world a greener, healthier, and more beautiful place by introducing plant selections with broad adaptability, disease resistance, and pest resistance. Kim acquired her bachelor's of science from NC State University, working under the mentorship of Dr. Tom Rainey, and from there, she continued her studies at Oregon State University with Dr. Ryan Contreras. She is very active in the horticulture industry with the American Society for Horticultural Science and also the Eastern Region of the International Plant Propagator Society. In this episode, we talk about a wide range of topics. From the plants that she's worked on and bred over the years, her passion for quilting, and even her love of her dog, Mabel Jones. You can find out more about Kim online through her profile page on the Morton Arboretum's website. Just Google Kim Shear Morton Arboretum and that will come up. And also her Instagram handle, at Kim in Transit. So let's listen along and learn more about how plants are developed and bred from Kim. Welcome to the Plantastic Podcast, Kim. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing Plantastic.
0: Awesome. (laughs) I'm thrilled to hear that you're doing Plantastic. It is a delight to have you on here today and to catch up too, because I haven't seen you in a couple of years.
1: I know. I think probably ASHS in DC.
0: Yes, that was last time. One of the first questions I wanted to ask is... I was curious how you first got interested in plants.
1: Yeah. So, I think there are like a couple of stages as far as horticulture goes, but I would say the first my interest in plants comes from my childhood. First, my mother was just avid gardener and plant lover. No matter what where we lived, she always had some sort of plants. We traveled a lot. So, my father was in the Army. Uh, I was an Army brat. And we lived um, in Germany and Korea in apartments. And whenever we were apartment living, my mother always had lots of houseplants. So, I grew up watering her houseplants as a kid. And then, when we moved into a house and she had a landscape to work with, her favorite was Irishes, Dogwoods, and Azaleas. So, we lived in North Carolina. So, obviously, she was in the right place. So, she gardened with those quite a bit, but she also had a really intense vegetable garden and she liked to grow her own crops to actually develop her own like Korean ingredients. So, she would do things like make a Korean miso paste from soybeans, like ferment her own stuff or fresh red pepper sun dry them. I was raised in that environment. And they didn't really know that I was making this connection with plants. And it was just kind of part of my life. So she would take me to garden centers and nurseries and just like drag me around. And I'd have to water plants and weed things. I learned like the two most important things that you need to know as a horticulturist. So that was like the gardening side. Yeah, right. <laughs> Watering and weeding.
0: Exactly.
1: Do you know which one's a weed and do you know how much water to give it? If you can figure those two things out, I think you're pretty good to go. Yeah,
0: that's a really good point. I like that.
1: And so I learned those two things at home. But the other thing, I work with trees quite a bit. That's my passion is working with woody plants and I think where I got that from is I, I moved around quite a bit. So there weren't very many constants in my life as far as people go. But what was a constant for me was there was always a forest. And so whenever I was a child and we were living in Germany or in Korea in foreign countries, I didn't necessarily know German and I knew some Korean. But what I could do was I could escape and go out into the forest And so no matter where I lived, I found that being consistent in my life, it helped group me in something.
0: That's Um, cool. So you feel like your mother was the driving force of that.
1: My mother was definitely a pretty significant
0: influence. And so with the forest, would you go walk through them? But you hear about the forest bathing, where people go out into forest and refresh themselves did you try to identify the plants in them
1: so i didn't try to identify the plants then what i was doing then i would say it's probably more something like forest bathing but i know what forest bathing was absolutely not i had a bicycle and when we were uh, living in germany and so i just ride my bicycle to the forest and explore, I had friends that I would run with. Uh, We also, in Germany where we lived, there were these gardens, these garden partials that the Germans had. So I would see them working in those, but then we'd also had this orchard that was right outside their walled garden. So we would climb those trees. So between going in those kind of orchards and then just riding the bike in the forest, those were, that's my experience with trees there. In Korea, we lived near the border, of, uh, the DMZ and we were in the foothills of some mountains and so we would hike the slopes to get up into the forest and then up there we would just play we were just kids uh, we'd find like these swing ropes randomly like hanging from pines and we'd, like swing <laughs> off the side of a mountain our parents had no idea what we were doing
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I told my dad this story in November last year he was like Wait, what?
0: <laughs> You're
1: out doing what? So, you know, that that's what I was doing. I was escaping. And I find myself today, when I went back to school, one of the things that I wanted to do was I wanted to be able to identify the trees in the forest. I'd never actually learned that. And so, before I'd even figured out what it was I exact, exactly wanted to do on my career path, I knew that one thing was I wanted to know more about plants scientifically. And then the other thing was I really wanted to be able to walk into a forest and know what the trees' names were and actually recognize them. Now, I was mostly um, enjoying the experience of being out in the woods and hearing the sounds that exist there and, like, the smells and experiencing just that moment, which I still do today. Yeah. Once a weekend, into to the forest.
0: That's cool. I haven't really thought about the fact that like me, I grew up in one place. So I get very familiar with the plants around me, but moving around, I'm sure that did really expose you to a whole lot of different plants.
1: Yeah, I wish I had someone in my life at that time who had been able to teach like recognize that and Really, mentor me through that process. My mother, she was really into her houseplants and things like that, but she didn't know how I think to connect with me on that level. Um, we had some cultural differences. Um, my, my mother was Korean, and I was a very American child, <laughs> so there was a lot of conflict there. And I think she also she was incredibly intelligent. But she was also working with an eighth grade education. So she didn't have the tools to be able to mentor me in that direction.
0: That but she still knew how to grow the plants and how to use them, though.
1: Oh, absolutely. She had all that um, cultural knowledge because she'd been raised on a rice farm. So she just learned that from living her day-to-day life. Cool.
0: So from there, I found an article where you were interviewed by NC State about your direction through becoming a tree and shrub breeder. And one of the things that you said was that you went to school, or you started going to school in 1997, and then you didn't feel like that was totally right, but then you came back later on to go to school for what you would eventually find out to be horticulture. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. So I actually graduated high school in 98. And the first time I went to NC State was for, I got accepted for biological engineering when I applied in 1998. I thought I was going to be, I I was really interested in the human genome project at the time.
0: Mm -hmm. I was interested in genetics. Yeah.
1: And so I was interested in like biotechnology. And then I had this pretty tragic event happen uh, my senior year of high school. And as trauma can do, it tends to Cause you to reevaluate your perspective in, on life. And so I, I decided uh, to press pause. I, I did give college, I, I gave it a good college try for a year. And then I decided since I I was so undecided and I had no clue what I wanted to do, that I would press pause for a little longer. So I dropped out and I just worked random jobs for, I don't know, 10, 10 years or so until finally I ended up in Victoria's Secret supervising at the stock room at Crabtree Valley Mall in Raleigh, North Carolina. (laughs) 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 And so supervising the stock room for several years and then the recession hit Mm. and the, actually the year before the recession hit, my mother passed away. So she Mm. died from um, cancer And I knew that I wanted to go back to school and I knew that I wanted to study plants, but I wasn't exactly certain how that looked or what exactly I was going to do with that. I went back to school. I got back in for plant biology and the prerequisites to take any classes at the time that had anything to do with plants take me like a year. (laughs) And so I was like, I'd rather just start learning about plants now. Like, why am I going to start? Why am I going to waste time? I've already wasted so much time in my life not learning about plants. I want to learn about them as soon as possible. So I uh, signed up for home horticulture with Bryce Lane, and that was my first plant class. And I didn't know, or I didn't remember, what horticulture was. High school was like a complete black box for me. I had basically blocked it all out. So I didn't remember anything. Um, so I didn't remember what horticulture was, and uh, so I took home horticulture, which is for non majors. And I sat in the front row because so I sat in the front row of every class because I was nearsighted. People thought I was like really attentive in <laughs> the studios, but I was nearsighted and ADHD. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so if I sat anywhere besides the front row, I couldn't see or pay attention. Yes,
0: <laughs> so- I'm the same way. I'm the same way. In second <laughs> grade, I went to the doctor, and the doctor was like. Jared, how are you doing in class? And I'm like, oh, I make an ace. And he was, said, where do you sit? And I said, the front row. And he <laughs> said, well, that's the only way that you're doing well in class because you can't see anything.
1: <laughs> exactly. <Yep. Yeah. laughs> so you understand. So I was sitting in Bryce Lane's class and he's very enthusiastic and very passionate and really great at communicating with yes. a broad range of people and he's very engaging. And so I was hooked, you know, I was like, wow, this horticulture thing, this is like magical. This is it. I think this might be what I actually want to do with my life. I had no idea that this was like a career path or that there were so many career paths. So that's when I decided, okay, I want to, I think I want to double major in horticulture. Which, which avenue am I going to take? Right. So that's how I ended up pursuing horticulture, but it wasn't until I think it was Braceline's, May have been his principles of horticulture class, which was the next class I took. He brought in Denny Warner's, he brought in his plant. And it was like in a little one gallon container. And you know, it's like this little curb stick mm. in a black mm. pot. And he was so excited about it. And he just walked into the classroom. And he was standing in front of the classroom with this pot with a stick in it. And he's, Do you all know what, you know, like Search's this is? I had no idea. It's a red bud. It's red bud. It's flowers every spring. You see it in the understory. So he's describing this understory native forest species. And he says, this one I got from my friend across the hall, who is an ornamental plant breeder. And he made this so that it's actually weaving and has red leaves instead of your normal red bud with green leaves. And for me, I thought that was so, like, amazing, really. I was like, so you mean he took this plant out of the forest and he created something completely different that someone can plant in their garden, which doesn't really seem like a big deal. But when you think about it from, like, a bigger picture view, You have taken something from nature and you put it in someone's garden so that it's like really, it's a really engaging, charismatic plant, right? So it's going to cause people to stop and say, what in the world is that? And when they do that, if they ask that question, what in the world is that, which I've asked myself, and they get the answer, oh, Cirrus canadensis, which is a North American understory tree species that you can go see in the forest. What are the possibilities that person might say, that's pretty cool. Maybe I should go to the forest and go see this tree when it's blooming in the forest. And you have the opportunity not only to create something for the landscape where we exist, that's our human habitat, but you also have the opportunity to make a connection with somebody, actually draw them in. You can engage somebody like in the garden landscape and really draw them in and you can cause an individual to dive deeper to explore what's below the surface of that garden plant and really um, connect them to nature. So they might actually go out into the forest and see what's out there. I want to go see this red bud in bloom because it really engaged me in someone's garden. And I think that's honestly one of the kind of things that I appreciate about public gardens too. Working at a public garden, we had this amazing collection of plants from all over the world. And a lot of people who have access to that collection will never have, maybe, maybe never have the opportunity yeah.
0: to see that plant
1: in its native habitat or landscape. But we've given them the opportunity to see it. And now they can go look at a tag and say, what is that thing? And they can go and look it up online. And then maybe they can go on Google Earth with today's technology and actually see it in the forest. Like connecting people to nature through the garden was what really drew me in to being an ornamental. Or I was a landscape plant reader. I don't even like to use the word ornamental anymore.
0: Yeah. So a couple of things. One, I thought that was beautiful way that you described it because... I don't think that I've ever thought about that the development of cultivars could be a way and an avenue to connect people with plants. For me, cultivars are selections and stuff that are oftentimes maybe superior or different than what, as you said, out in the forest. But that is just such a cool way of thinking about it that what you're developing could help to engage someone with plants that's really and the other thing too that I think is beautiful about everything you're describing is you talked about your background in walking through forest and so now you're developing plants that are basically connecting people back with something that resonated with you as a child and as a young person
1: exactly yeah yeah, yeah I think I think that's probably um why I was there that that's probably why I looked at That uh, moment in that way, because I was looking at it through my own perspective and just knowing that I was someone who was walking through a forest wanting to know what these plants are, and then realizing, oh, these plants are actually in someone's garden somewhere. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And if I can make plants that are charismatic in someone's garden, Then maybe I can reverse that direction, you
0: know? (laughs) (laughs) Right.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And get people to also go look back. Sure. Yeah. Um,
0: Right. Cool. And you alluded to this as you were talking, and I pulled the quote too from the interview, but you said, No one ever tells you that you can make a life working with garden plants. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that people. Don't have that knowledge because time and time again, I find that when people are connected with plants and when people find out they can have a career there, it's like a life epiphany. And so how is it that more people don't have that knowledge?
1: I don't know the answer to that. And that's okay.
0: I, I don't either. That's why I'm asking.
1: <laughs> yeah, I wish I did know the answer to that. And I think and I think it's important work. I think things like what Steve, your future is doing. Yes. You know, to yeah. really like raise that awareness, I think is really critical. I looked up the u- word usage. So there's, I, I just learned something new the other day, the Ngram viewer on Google.
0: Yes. Yes. It's awesome.
1: That is so cool. So I looked up horticulture. And it was really sad because you saw this graph that was basically a bell, but <laughs> we were on the low end on the right side of it. And it's not like a good, so basically the peak of the usage of the word horticulture was like, what, in the early 1900s or something? Yeah, I think that's accurate. And it's just, conti- it's just you know, gradually gone down. So basically it started at a low point when the word horticulture was invented and we're go- we've gone back to that. Yeah, today? And I I don't know what the answer is. I think we obviously um, need to raise awareness and there needs to be a considerable amount of outreach. I think, I hope that there's a lot of terrible things that have happened in the past year. The pandemic has certainly been awful. I'm still feeling that, can't wait to get my vaccine. I don't think we're going to return to normal, what we thought was normal necessarily. But you know what, one thing that I did see through this pandemic that I think is an opportunity for us is people started to recognize that there were plants outside and they started to recognize that they needed to put plants in their landscape or that they wanted to have more plants in their home because they were in that space all the time. And they they realize, intuitively recognized that green was a good thing for them. And there has been research done that shows the positive impacts of green spaces and having green living things around you. And we saw a rise in public garden visitation like a significant rise. We couldn't keep people out of the public gardens when i, you know, was primarily staying at home. I was spending a lot of time walking, and so was everybody else in my community, and we were all in the green spaces. And so I'm hoping one thing that comes out of this pandemic is the realization that horticulture is not this accessory. <laughs> Yeah. it is you know fundamental to our existence we need horticulture in so many ways the kind of more, more practical ways well, obviously food all of a lot of our food production comes from horticulture and but we also need horticulture just for our living spaces and recognizing that green spaces are critical for health, uh, physically and mentally, for infrastructure and for like mitigating like the effects of the urban heat island. Recognizing the importance and significance of green spaces, I'm hoping that we can take that and build a momentum and actually cause some change in our society to where that horticulture actually actually gets elevated more. So I don't know, maybe because the defunding of horticulture that's happening academically, it's tragic. It's already bad enough that we can't get people to recognize horticulture is so important and that it's a viable career path, but then to continue to take funding away from it. Where does that leave us as a society when we depend so much on horticulture?
0: Yeah, no, I wholeheartedly agree. Thank you for sharing your thoughts on that. Another thing, too, is thank you also for sharing that you didn't just come straight out of high school and go into a career. And I see this a lot with students, too, that sometimes when people don't have things figured out, they feel like that's the end of the world. You are clearly an example of a successful person who came back to education later on in life. And was still able to pursue that. So I know at NC State you did some internships. And then I know you did your master's in Oregon. Can you talk about those experiences a little bit?
1: Yes, I absolutely can. I was actually I was actually just talking to so I have a breeding assistant at the Arboretum, Andrew, and he's fabulous. And I was telling him this story on Friday at the end of our meeting. We were talking about mentorship. And we were talking stories, what we were doing, ending on a positive note. And I remember when I was an undergraduate student, I was, like I said, I knew nothing. I decided I was going to go into horticulture and be a plant breeder and work specifically with woody plants. And also I liked public gardens. So somehow I was going to turn that into a career. And so I I proceeded to try to figure out how to do that positioning myself in certain places and one of those places was the conservatory at NC State. So I found myself in the conservatory with Diane Mies, doing a little internship with her for two semesters and that's where I met Jared Barnes.
0: <laughs> exactly.
1: Who was a grad student.
0: And also let's give a shout out to Diane, a wonderful oh. lady.
1: Oh, she's amazing. She was my first horticulture mentor. And thanks to her, I met Denny Warner and she helped put me on the path of being mentored by uh, Denny. And and then I met you because you were in there so much. Mm -hmm. And at this point in time, I was really passionate about what I wanted to do. And so I was trying to pick up all those skills, but I hadn't yet taken any of the academic courses. So I had taken home horticulture, I'd taken principles of horticulture, and I was doing this internship. I think I was working. I think I was uh, working in a garden center, Logan's Garden Center, mm-hmm. in downtown Raleigh, selling annuals and uh, vegetables. and And I remember I was standing in the hallway in Kilgore Hall at NC State, and I was looking at the job board. And there was this internship hosted for the Mountain Crop Improvement Lab with Dr. Tom Ranny outside of Asheville, North Carolina. And I was like, man, that would be an amazing internship. That looks so cool because, you know, they use like really cool photos. Tom's a great photographer. He yeah. <laughs> so, you <know>, you definitely <laughs> does good on drawing you
0: in <laughs> yeah. with
1: those photos of the mountains.
0: Yes. Um,
1: And so I was standing there looking at it and I remember you came up and you started talking to me and I had mentioned how amazing that internship looked and you're like, you should apply for that. And you were totally like very positive, being so supportive, like your normal, typical self. Um, (laughs) Thank you. And I was like, yeah, no, like I have zero. I don't have the appropriate. I've never taken genetics. I don't even know how to propagate woody plants yet. I don't know how to identify woody plants. I hadn't taken identification yet. So there were all these classes I had on my schedule to take, but I hadn't taken them. And I was like, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I'm not prepared. And you're like, what's the worst that can happen? You apply for it. And then Tom just either doesn't interview you or he interviews you and he just doesn't give you the position. So why? So I was like, mm, okay, you're right. Why not? I'll have my resume ready. I'd already been turned down for a few other positions on campus with a corn breeder and like some other breeder or something. So it's like, okay, I'll try. So I put my application in. Tom Rainey calls me, and I had applied for and also applied for the J.C. Ralston Arboretum internship. And Tom calls me the day before my J.C. Ralston interview. No, not a few days before my J.C. Ralston interview. He interviews me. It goes really well. And I think it was like the next day, maybe two days later, it wasn't that long. He offered me the position. Mm-hmm. And I remember it wasn't lying. He offered me the position. And I was about to go to the J.C. Ralston interview. And I happen to be sitting, so I mean, my life in horticulture is a series of serendipitous events. Okay. Mm-hmm. I happen to be sitting in another one of Bryce Lane's classes. I forget what it was called, but it was a one hour credit course where you like went and I think it was perspectives in horticulture. That's what it was. Okay. So like professionals come and they they come talk to you and talk, you, talk to you about their career path. And Richard Olson was talking that day. Oh, Yeah. And he was talking, you know, he was at the National Arboretum and he'd also been a student with Tom Rainey and he'd been at the JC Ralston Arboretum. So after class, I went up to him and I told him my dilemma and I asked him for advice. I was like, what do I do? He said, you go interview with JC Ralston and you let them know that you're interested in Tom Rainey's program. Mm -hmm. So I did. And I let them know, I was like, I'm going to take this position with Tom Rainey. Thank you so much for this opportunity. And maybe I can work here in the future. So I went and worked with Tom Ranney and that was like it. I knew as soon as I went and worked in that program, he's such a great staff and they're so supportive and it's such a wonderful work environment for being mentored in this particular field. For me, it was an immediate click and I just picked it up and I did not look back. I just kept going down that path. Like I knew that's what I wanted And I I thought I was like, you know, I'd really like to do this in public garden, but I don't think that's even possible. But I'd really like to do this in public garden. So we'll (laughs) see what happens.
0: The preview of coming attractions.
1: So really, Jared Barnes, (laughs) I have to give you credit for telling me to apply for an internship that I didn't think I was qualified for. (laughs) Thank
0: you. I really appreciate that. And I'll be honest, I vaguely remember that conversation. If you had not mentioned it, I I would not have any recall whatsoever. But the funny thing is, is that hearing you say me say. What's the worst could happen? It sounds totally like me. Yeah. So kudos to you. Great.
1: Yeah. And that that kind of takes me, I was having this conversation um, with my friend, Mike Yenny last week, who is this wonderful plant propagator and he's also a plant breeder. He developed eye and pinkalicious spirea and techneto arbor- arborvitae, a bunch of different woody plants he's been working on all his career. And we were talking about mentorship and we were also talking about how you really never know what it is you might say one day that just completely changes someone's life and career path and it happened to him. And it happened to me. And it's just, and you don't forget that moment, like those moments, yeah. those are those moments that really stand out to you. And the person who does it may not have meant anything to them when they did it, but it could have meant everything to that person. So I like to, I try to remind myself of that. Like when, whenever I'm talking to anybody, a student, a young professional, anyone try at least to realize whatever you say could really impact how they view horticulture or public gardens or plant breeding or anything and could really yes. affect their whole past factories
0: yeah. So, yeah that's that's a great point because one of my philosophies is be kind because you you never know what you say to someone how it's going to impact them later on so that's a great For point sure. yeah and
1: i'm not perfect I'm not, I'm not say oh i'm,
0: I'm not perfect.
1: either <laughs> <laughs> so definitely leave that part in there because uh. i am by no means perfect i make mistakes but um, I, and I regret my mistakes when I make those mistakes, I'll recognize them later. Yeah. We're all human, but at least try. Cause you never know. And like that, that, that person needs just say, wow, this, I want to be a plant propagator for the rest of my life. That's yeah. it. I'm done. <laughs> yeah. <know>? Figured <laughs> my life out for me. And for me, it was that, that helped.
0: So. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. And then you then went to Oregon for graduate school after that.
1: I did. So I went to Oregon State University. I did. So I did. I finished. I did two summers with Tom and I did a Gregory Baldizella, a research project that was a plant exploration expedition. I got to plan and execute. You actually came. I did. Um, yes. I
0: did. Yes. Irene Palmer was the one who invited me on that one because I'd read that you have to experience Gregory Bald before you die. And I knew that I would be leaving north carolina within the next couple years and so it just so happened i had a free weekend and yeah i came and it it was glorious it was definitely one of the most amazing experiences of a naturally occurring plant community that i think i've ever had
1: thank you because that was my first one that i ever planned tom gave me a list of projects (laughs) and he said okay pick the project you want to do for your independent study uh this summer uh so it was my first summer with him And I looked at it and I was like, okay, I want to do these three projects. (laughs) (laughs) Like, no, you have to pick one. (laughs) Okay. All right. I want to do the one where we get to go hiking and camping and exploring. So that's why I picked the Gregory Baldwin and I got to do lab work too. So I got to do a lot of different things. So I did that. And then I also did a dogwood genome size and 40 survey with Tom my second summer and so my second summer with Tom was an undergraduate research assistantship because that January I called Tom and I said, I know you need to probably hire someone different for this internship this summer since I've already had a chance. But I really would like to come back up and work with you another summer because I get a lot of value from that. Mm-hmm. So I'd be willing to volunteer. I valued the experience so much. I knew it would, you know, like be wow. so such a significant contribution to my resume. Yeah. Sure. And I was already 10 years behind. Okay. So I was like, I'll work for free. So I ended up doing the Dogwood Genome Size Survey with Tom. And so I got two publications working with him. And then because of that experience, I was able to go work with Jenny Zhang my last summer of undergrad, for which Jenny had me apply for this undergraduate research grant, which was called, it was, it was through the National Science Foundation. It was called the Eden Grant. And it was basically this program that they've developed to mentor for students in evolutionary biology and developmental biology. And so I wrote a grant to work with Jenny in her lab, uh, looking at the evolution of floral architecture using dogwoods as the model. So I learned a lot about molecular systematics. I learned, I did another plant exploration expedition that I planned and executed through Jenny. And then I also learned more techniques and got more lab skills. And so all of that kind of internship experience and research assistantship experience as an undergrad is what really beefed up my resume and made me competitive for grad school and for Oregon State University. At the time, I was married to Jason, who is now at High Point University, directing their conservatory there. And he was going to do a PhD with Ryan Contreras in ornamental plant breeding. And I also wanted to do a graduate degree in ornamental plant breeding. (laughs) So (laughs) he was there first. And I sent my resume to Ryan and was like, I know like this is not maybe ideal, but I also would like to work as a, a graduate research assistant. And eventually he took me on as a master's student. And so I went to go work with Ryan and what I would end up studying was when you go to school for ornamental plant breeding, you work with a lot of diverse crops typically, and you have a lot of different potential projects. And one strategy to ensure that you have something productive by the end of your two and a half years is to have a diversity of projects. So I had one project that was focused on maples, doing a genome size employee survey of maples, and it was very broad. I basically looked at the North American collections uh, that was represented in all the public gardens, uh, the the accredited uh, maple collections through the APGA. And then also worked with the organ and nursery community to get cultivated material. I did this broad genome-size employee survey of maples I'm looking for diversity in genome-size employee to use that as that information as a breeding tool. Then I also did a chapter on hybrid, hybridizing hybridizing and using interspecific hybridization. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were looking to Figure out if we could develop uh, lens garden pensiman that would be more tolerant of uh, the winter landscape of Oregon. Which, if you know anything about Oregon, it's really wet, and so pensiman don't particularly like it there.
0: Yeah, I deal with the same thing in East Texas. I'll just have penstemon melt for me, but I'm growing more Southern Eastern species, but still they struggle.
1: Yeah. So that's, so we were looking to figure out some hybrids or some hybrid directions that we could work with. So that was another project. And then my last chapter was looking at the effects of this chemical mutagen called ethyl methane sulfonate or EMS for short. Now looking at the effects of EMS on a bold species, which was Galtonia candicans at the time. It's Ornithogalum candicans or uh, Cape Hyacinth, which is a South African native. And for that, we were looking at increasing genetic diversity in Cape Hyacinth and also reducing the scape height. Uh, EMS is this chemical mutagen that has been used for breeding and then also like other kind of genetic research. And what it does is it causes these random point mutations. So like it basically causes a chemical reaction at a base pairing in the DNA. And when it causes this appellation reaction, the DNA repair mechanism comes along and it's, at, it's chugging along the strands of DNA. And it's like, okay, whoa, what is this? And it sees there's an error in the DNA and so it goes to correct the error after the EMS has interacted with it. Mm-hmm. And the, when you know anything happens in the natural world, we know that the natural world favors going th- the lowest energy reactions, right? Mm-hmm. And so the lowest energy reaction in this process is to just switch the nucleot- nucleotide pairings. So the base pairing. Hmm. So you have a full mutation, They you have a mutation right there, a point mutation, best at that base pairing.
0: Okay, cool.
1: And so that EMS molecule goes in to the cell, into the nucleus, and it interacts with the DNA and it causes random point mutations all over the DNA. And then DNA repairment comes along and corrects all of, all the alkylation reactions, mutates everything. And you have no idea where those mutations can occur. It's totally random. So it could happen in a gene. It could happen in something that's not a gene, an area that's not a gene. If it happens in a gene, it might cause a change in what's expressed. It may not. So we're looking for random mutations. So in the first generation after you mutate, this you treat seed is what you do uh, through a liquid and so your first generation you're not going to see a lot of those recessive point mutations so you might not see all this really cool genetic diversity you've created yeah but what you do see is you see uh, reduced germination because the mutation obviously caused some issues and then you also see reduced internodes or reduced height so dwarfing And that's in that first kind of round of mutation before you have any intercrossing. And so what I saw, so what I was looking at as a grad student was this population of some controls and some mutants. And what I was seeing was not all, yes, indeed, EMS had caused this cape hyacinth to shrink. Okay. It went from a five foot to five foot scape to like a one foot (laughs) scape.
0: Yeah. (laughs) You know,
1: yeah, pretty much (laughs) shrunk it. The other thing I noticed though, was I'm walking these rows and I'm like, man, these controls are producing so much seed, like copious amounts of seed, which is why it was a great plant to use for the experiment. But then you start looking at the mutants and the seed production doesn't, it's not really there. So I started collecting data on that. And what I found was the EMS the had all, actually also reduced the fertility. Hmm. And that, that was my graduate school. So my thesis ended up being focused on evaluating diversity in plants and evaluating and implementing kind of the like different types of diversity or using different types of diversity. I forget the title. I've fucked it all out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's how thesis <laughs> titles usually are. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs>
1: But that was basically like the, the the overarching kind of theme that tied everything together was diversity. So today in my position at the Martin Arborita, my focus as a breeder is on diversity, okay. right? True. So my, I was mentored by Tom and then I went through Ryan's program and that kind of shaped how I view things. And for me, I think the focus was on diversity because I saw... The diversity of plant material that Tom works with as a breeder is really quite astounding. Like it's overwhelming. It's a lot of stuff, but it's also really engaging and inspiring. And that's like working in that kind of environment for me was like really energizing. And then going through Ryan's program, he'd also been a student of Tom Rainey's and he's doing the same things, working with the diversity of plant material. And now that's what I'm doing. And I think it's, we need a diversity of plants for our future. And we need a diversity of landscape plants for our future that, that are going to grow in our developed landscapes. So I've taken that and applied that to my program. And I've also taken the EMS thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually applying that in my program now too. So I've got several EMS projects as a result of that graduate work.
0: That's cool. Yeah. And one of the things you're alluding to is a lot about plant breeding is a numbers game mm-hmm. that not only having the number of an individual species, but also, especially if you're like a uh, plant breeder, having a variety of projects because you never know when one of the pipelines may go bust or may strike gold.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you just have all these different pipelines. Is there a plumber analogy?
0: Unless a plumber is striking oil.
1: Yeah.
0: So I want to come back to your work at the Morton Arboretum in a little bit, but I wanted to ask you a couple questions about how you grow and cultivate yourself. You've talked a lot about your education and of course that's one thing, but I'm curious, what do you do to stay current? And then also do you have day-to-day practices that help you be a better horticulturist or plant breeder or employee that you can talk about as well?
1: Oh, that's a lot. Okay.
0: So let's start with the first part. The first part is how do you stay current with the horticulture world? What's going on?
1: Right. So how do I stay current? So the way I stay current is I think professional development is incredibly important for everybody,
0: whether it's
1: a student or the executive director, president of a garden. I think Professional development is necessary for essential for everybody. And for me, the way I stay current is I'm through professional membership through those networks. So I'm a member of the American Society for Horticulture Science. And so I try to go to those meetings and stay current with ASHS. And they have their own journals that they publish that I have you know full access to as a member. And I stay engaged and active in the society by actually participating in professional interest groups and learning from that network. And then I'm also um, really engaged with uh, the International Plant Propagator Society. And uh, they offer, they've been offering a lot of really great professional development opportunities uh, the Eastern region has through their micro meetings this throughout this pandemic. So that, that's been really good. So seeking out knowledge, seeking to seek and to share is our motto, right? So seeking out knowledge that way. And then I don't, want to limit myself right to just horticulture like I also like to expand things out to things like forestry so I have I try to find those kind of seminar opportunities Iowa offers Iowa State University offers the Iowa shade tree short course which is really fantastic and then the University of Minnesota also offers the Minnesota shade tree short course every year which is also really great. They both get incredible speakers and they cover a broad range of topics relative to trees. So participating in those types of things. But the other element that I think is really important is to leave your bubble. I travel when, when there was no pandemic, I traveled quite a bit. Um, I'm fortunate that I have those travel opportunities through my position. I go to uh, Oregon once a year for the Far West Trade Show because I, I'm the woody plant liaison for Chicago and Gross. And when I go to Oregon, I always make a point of visiting nurseries. So I see what they're doing and see like how they're being innovative in their production. And then I also try to go visit any kind of public gardens and look for different things. I try to see other greenhouse facilities. So I'm always looking um, to see what other people are doing in other places. And then when I go to conferences, I'm always looking for that kind of engagement, that tours or just walking around a city and seeing what kind of trees do they have planted here. To me, that's important too. So I try to explore the landscape And then also stay engaged through uh, professional development opportunities. And then take the time to read publications like Arnoldia, Digger Magazine that's produced by the Oregon Association of Nurseries, and the Hort Science Journal.
0: Cool. And then do you have daily practices or daily rituals that you go through as a horticulturist or a plant breeder? Are there things that you do on a regular basis to help be successful?
1: I wish that I could say <laughs> I have this perfect schedule of daily rituals. Being a
0: horticulturist, it is hard it's because really hard. there's always something or it's raining, but I'm just, I'm curious about your successful plant breeder but deconstructing you know how how that whole yeah. process works yeah yeah
1: yeah it's really messy i am like under the surface i'm just like a hurricane that's
0: okay that's good to know so be being... keep
1: it contained. <laughs> 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 but, you know, my, my, honestly, my daily rituals are there, not necessarily horticulturally. I, I have to, my, my humidifier has to be refilled every morning um, for yeah. my house plants. Cause I live in the Chicagoland region and it's incredibly yeah. dry here. So, you know, you have to have like humidifiers all over the place. For me, I have a dog and yes. I, Maybell, Yes. Miss yes. Maybell Jones. And I have to, of course, take care of her, but I find a lot of value in the fact that every morning my routine is I get up and I immediately put my clothes on. And the first thing I do is I walk Maybell. and it's early in the morning and there's no one else out except for the birds and the squirrels and some bunnies and a few dog walkers and runners. And I live in a village that is very well planted. It's an accredited arboretum.
0: Oh, wow, nice.
1: Yeah. And so we walk, and I get the opportunity to merge myself in that. And it gives me time to really think about what the rest of my day looks like. And so it's about a 30 minute to 45 minute walk every morning that I do to think about my day. And that's my morning ritual. I, the other thing that I do is for my program, Andrew and I meet every week. We meet at the end of the week on Friday and we talk about all of the stuff that we've got accomplished for the week and all of the things that we would like to get accomplished for the upcoming week. And we don't leave it at that. We also have, we, we like to read. We've been reading parts of the tree book from Duran Warren since we're working with trees. And so we'll talk about, so we try to set aside time every Friday to talk about a group of trees. Oh, uh, cool. Week. Yeah, so that's a ritual that we've been developing during the pandemic. And I would say those, like the walks, and then taking that moment to talk about like a plant group together, we generate ideas that way, which I found I found that like really rewarding. And I have my perspective, then and Andrew has a completely different perspective, right? Like he's coming at things from a different place and from different experience. And so I get the opportunity to really hear, opportunity to hear things from his perspective and look at things through his eyes and his experience, which is valuable for me, both as a breeder and definitely as a breeder and then also as a manager.
0: Um, Yeah. I love that idea of the Friday meeting. I do that with my students too, but I love the integration of the group of plants in there. You're right. That's definitely something to stay current is... Constantly refreshing, constantly going back through and reading. So I liked hearing about that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's been really cool because he comes up with ideas and I'm like, that's, you know, a really, actually a really great idea for a project. So we started generating a list of potential project ideas or breeding ideas just from these Friday conversations.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. And I know you are an avid quilter.
1: Yes. I wish I had more time, (laughs)
0: no no I understand that but for quilting I recall that you did a really incredible Magnolia quilt for I think it was the Magnolia Society meeting is that correct
1: it was yeah yeah. yeah.
0: so for you is quilting a way that you can integrate horticulture into another craft or is that a totally separate outlet that you do independent of that
1: it So it's a totally separate outlet, but so I'm a very visual person, um, a visual learner. I connect to things visually and I'm also very tactile. Like I like to touch things, horticulture, obvious, (laughs) it's very visual and very tactile. So with quilting, my grandmother was a really amazing quilter and she, and I didn't get to grow up around my grandmother because I was an army brat. And so I was looking for a way to connect with her more on a deeper level. When I was in my early 20s, it was before I went back for horticulture. And so I went and I stayed with her for a month in the summer, one year, and she taught me how to quilt in a, in a month.
0: Wow, cool. Yeah.
1: And my grandmother was always, she never sold a quilt. She was an award-winning quilter. She would show her quilts, at quilt shows. She was part of like several guilds. And, but she refused to ever sell anything. She would only give them away. That was her, that was her rule. So all her quilts, she made them. And then she either gave them away as gifts to friends or family members, or she donated them to like the children's hospital or what have you. And that's all she did with her quilts. So that's what she taught me. And fast forward, I was actually down at my grandmother's a couple years ago. It was the year that I made that Magnolia quilt and I um, was helping her pack all her, her sewing room to move her into the retirement facility. And so in a house and move her into this little apartment where she would not have a sewing room anymore, but just like a sewing space. Mm-hmm. And she had all these patterns and I came across this Magnolia pattern and I was like, Oh, wow. How <laughs> cool.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. And so I took that home with me And Matt Lobdell, who is the curator at the Morton Arboretum, saw this pattern. And he's also a huge Magnolia fanatic and on the board of the Magnolia Society. So when he saw that, he was like, Kim, can I get you (laughs) to make this Magnolia
0: quilt (laughs)
1: for the Magnolia Society? And I thought, absolutely. Like, I would love to make this quilt for the Magnolia Society. As a donation, because I would be in the spirit of my grandmother, who taught me how to quilt. And I'd also be able to give back to horticulture in some way. And so I, I donated it to the Magnolia Society for their auction to for raising funds. And I think so now what I would like to do Is to incorporate that into my quilting practice is trying to make time, first of all, to make quilts, but then also developing quilts that can be used to potentially generate some money for a good cause.
0: It's awesome. Um, That's cool. A
1: public garden or event. So yeah, I do have one. I'm not going to tell you who I'm working on it for, but I have one and I'm working on it for somebody's gala. But I don't want to tell you just because I don't want to have a hard deadline pushed on me.
0: (laughs) That's okay. That's
1: okay. (laughs) If you know what I'm saying.
0: I do know what you're saying. Yes. (laughs) We'll just file that under preview of coming attractions. Exactly. (laughs) So to to come to an attraction is that I mentioned earlier uh, your current job being a tree and shrub breeder at the Morton Arboretum. I'm interested in how you're blossoming within the world of horticulture and the cool projects that you're working on and how you're having an impact on the world of horticulture. So you want to tell us about some of the things that you're working on?
1: I was just making a list today. No. <laughs> <laughs> Good. To remind myself of all the exactly.
0: things. Exactly. Yeah. We can hit some of the highlights.
1: Yeah. So we'll start with plant breeding. How about that? Yeah. So at the Morton Arboretum, we have a legacy elm improvement program. And so what I've been doing a lot of is talking about this legacy elm improvement program um, in my public speaking engagements. So the first breeder at the Morton Arboretum was Dr. George Ware, and he was hired to be the research director, the first research director in 1968. And so he uh, established the Elm Improvement Program at the Morton Arboretum when he identified a Dutch elm disease-resistant chance seedling, which was an Asian elm, and we would later introduce as appellate elm. So what George did was he ended up building an elm breeding program from that kind of initial moment. And he did some hybridization, and we've introduced a couple trees from that, but what he really did... is going to have a really lasting impact, I think, is he developed a breeding population, right? So elms have a juvenility period, as all trees do. And sometimes trees take a while to flower. And so you have to wait and um, you have to put things aside. And so he selected a bunch of different elm seedlings that he'd been growing out in his research field at the Arboretum and observing And he selected them for different traits, and then he propagated everything, or he had everything cloned, and then planted out of the cemetery to intercross with each other once they matured. And one of his breeding objectives, in addition to all the disease-resistant stuff, was red fall color. And elms usually have yellow fall color. And so red fall color is really big. People really like red fall color. That's why everybody loves screaming maples, and everybody wants one in their front yard. And so red fall color is huge. And he recognized that. And so he started selecting things with red pigment on emerging leaves and also red pigment, like when they were young in their leaves. And he developed this breeding population. So what I've done is I've I found this breeding population, I found his records, and I've identified females that I'd like to use. And so I've been going back and I've been collecting seed from those. And last year, we planted our first 61 selections of elms that have red fall color, or actually have fall color of kind of a spectrum of fall color. So from like, yellow orangey caramels like lots of oranges in there all the way to like purple nice and everything in between so we selected 61 of those We was in the ground last year and so this year will be our first chance to do fall color evaluations after the growing seasons over after they've established themselves so that's incredibly exciting is to continue george Weir's legacy and actually, hopefully, get a redfall color introduction through the Morton Arboretum, which is what he envisioned for the future Awesome. Uh, program. Yeah. So that's my um, favorite project that I'm working on. And then I'm also working on ashes. Emerald ash borer is a big deal, it came in and pretty much decimated these green ash forests and these floodplain forests, the Chicagoland region, we're pretty limited and we don't have as broad of a plant palette as there is in the Southeast, right? Because we have really cold winters. We have lots of salt and we also have heat. And then we also have this incredibly developed environment, um, which is a lot of concrete, a lot of asphalt, there's pollution. There's a lot of people here. There's nine and a half million people in the Chicagoland region. Wow the last census yeah it's a lot of people and a lot of cars and so elms do really well in that environment (laughs) right (laughs) they're a species Mm -hmm. and so once upon a time elms were the primary species here and of course that all got wiped out by dutch elm disease back starting in the 60s 70s when it really got hit hard here and then everything got replanted with green ash (laughs) <laughs> or ash i guess i should right. say ash everything i planted with ash and you all, all the different ash species. and so you've got all the ashes in the landscape and then eab came through and it just wiped everything out not just in the landscape but in our forest so our floodplain was american elm then it was green ash both of those got wiped out and of course our urban forest was the same thing so Today, we have, we've been, what we've been working on the past few years is propagating these Asian ashes. So, there was a block of Asian ashes that were planted out in the nursery at the Morton Arboretum about 12 years ago. And just a broad represent sampling of different ashes. And they, EAB was present. So, they were exposed to EAB. And then Fred Meller, who is an entomologist and works as an adjunct with the Arboretum, he did a lot of research with George Ware when George was around, looking at elm leaf beetle and weevil. And he's also done Japanese beetle research. So he started doing EAB feeding studies, looking at juvenile and adult feed, feeding. And so he's got data he's going to publish this year from that block. So we know in that block, what is resistant to EAB or what's not preferred by EAB. And we also can see like what the trees look like. And so what we've been doing for the past years, few years is we've been propagating them. This year was the last year propagating them. So we've got all the genotypes that we want to keep grafted. There's some potential selections in there. And then the rest of it we'll just use as breeding germplasm to develop Asian ashes for the landscape. Green ashes, there is this really excellent project with Jennifer, led by Jennifer Cook over at the U.S. Forest Service in Ohio at the Northern Research Station. There's been a lot of publicity about it this past year. And what they've done at the U.S. Forest Service is they've identified what's called lingering ashes. Have you heard of this?
0: Like where... Emerald ash borer goes through an area, and then you still have some ashes that are still alive? Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. They first noticed this in uh, forestry plots, and they were in Michigan and Ohio. And they recognized that there were ashes that actually survived after EAB infested and killed everything around them. So they developed some criteria for lingering ashes, and then they started hunting for them in Michigan and Ohio in the native forest. And they found some. And so they've been able to demonstrate, first they were able to identify what was happening. Like. And what they found happening was these green ashes had developed two kind of modes of resistance. One of them, they, in both of them, they recognize, the tree recognizes that the larvae is in its vascular system. And however it recognizes that the larvae is there, It gets a signal, and then that causes a series of signals to happen. One of them, the tree will actually cause apoptosis or programmed cell death around the larvae to starve it to death.
0: Yeah, definitely. It
1: starves the larvae to death, so it just traps it. And then the other one, it uses biochemical warfare to attack the larvae to stunt its development, so then it can't you know, move and feed off the trees. So in both methods, the trees figured out, the tree has adapted a way to kill EAB larvae. Mm-hmm. And so they found that through their bioassay methods and then they've been able to hybridize the two. Mm-hmm. And so what they're seeing is that in resistance or really in, yeah, in resistance, you can have quantitative resistance or you can have qualitative resistance, right? Sure. Qualitative resistance, is it is it resistant? Yes or no? Either it dies or it doesn't die. In, qual- in, in quantitative resistance, you have a spectrum of responses. And what they've seen in stacking those two resistance mechanisms is they've developed uh, a spectrum of responses. So there's a qualitative resistance happening. And so they can go from having progeny that are completely susceptible to having progeny that appear to be completely resistant and like everything in between. Hmm. So, This is really fantastic news for green ash.
0: Yeah, I was about to ask you, do you think that there will be a day when elms and ashes will be able to return to the landscape and not necessarily be a dominant as they were? Not necessarily, I guess I should say, be a monoculture as they (laughs) almost were, but at least that we'll have those options again horticulturally.
1: Yeah, I think elms are already back out in the landscape. Yeah.
0: And uh, like the American native species.
1: The native species, yeah. So the native species, there are some disease-resistant selections of American elm. And we also have some, we, we do have an American elm program at the Morton Arboretum that was initiated by, she was our plant pathologist and now she's our plant health care specialist. It's a new position for her. She initiated an American elm breeding program several years ago using material from this plant pathologist named Jean Heimlich. So we do have some American elms that we think are, have some resistance that we're going to evaluate in the landscape on her project. I think elms you'll see in the landscape. I think ashes you will see in the landscape again. I think the important takeaway is don't overplant anything, right? So when someone says to me, do we really need another cultivar of X I say,
0: yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I agree.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, because especially when it comes to trees, do we really want to plant all one cultivar of a species? Just because it's great in production, I get that's an important factor to consider, but I think you're going to have more than one genotype that demonstrates some sort of resistance to something in order for it to be a healthy landscape. If there is like a resistant, there are resistant American elms out there, do you want to just plant one cultivar of resistant American elm? Absolutely not. So I think there's that. You want to plant like more cultivars of things, but then you also want to plant more species, right? Species diversity, generic diversity, I think are incredibly important in our landscape. So I, I do think elms and ashes are going to be seen in the landscape again. But I think just because we get these solutions to our problems, it doesn't mean we should go back to doing it the same that we did before. Let's not right. throw a bunch of ash out there again. <laughs> Let's not throw a bunch of elms out there again. Right. Um, makes me a little uncomfortable (laughs) to see that. My question would be, what's the next... What I've been thinking about is what is the next thing that's going to come and wipe out the next popular landscape tree that's also prevalent or ubiquitous within our forest systems?
0: Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Something that I've looked at, that I've noticed, I drive a lot. I do a lot of road trips around the country. And there's a lot of sycamores here. Mm,
0: Yeah.
1: And... The, and there's a lot of London plane trees in the landscape and they're all over the world. They're everywhere in every city and they're great trees. We have, we have two and we have one introduction that's out there right now, exclamation plane tree. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's really cool. It's very upright and narrow. A great street tree, stunning bark in the winter. So I love, I love them. But yeah, I wonder, is there something that's going to come out and be significantly detrimental to flatness? Yeah. Who, who
0: knows? Knows? Yeah, yeah. who knows yeah yeah knows laurel wilt and sassafras really concern me
1: yeah yeah that's
0: definitely yeah. an issue i want to be respectful of your time i i just have a couple of rapid fire questions but is there anything else that you want to say about any of the work and stuff you're doing at the morton arboretum i know you mentioned that you have 61 elms like how long will it take to get those out let's say that this fall you have a really incredible red elm. And you're like, oh my goodness, this is this is the oil. How <laughs> long before pipeline. I have
1: an introduction? Yeah, so how I would long? say probably yeah. like 20 years.
0: Okay, so <laughs> you'll be on episode 1000 of the Plantastic <laughs> podcast talking about Is that what you're saying?
1: They have to grow. We got to see right, what they look right, like and right. how they perform. And we have to propagate them and evaluate them in field production. And when it's all said and done, 20 years is not like a really long time for a tree.
0: And I agree with that, but I was asking that question for the listener. Oh, for sure. Um, Because I know that like a petunia or something, you might be able to get it out within just a couple of years. But these trees just take so long a lot of times. so Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So yeah, I I get to carry George's work forward, but then hopefully someone will carry my work forward. (laughs) Mm,
0: (laughs) So meanwhile,
1: I work on lots of shrub species. It'll be a little
0: bit shorter though, right?
1: Yeah. So I'm hoping to at least like fill in a space of time with the shrub species. So maybe 10 years on a shrub species, 15. No. So I have a dervilla. We have a dervilla breeding project. That was actually yeah. And it was initiated by Joe Rothlutner, who was the breeder right before me. And what Joe did was he treated Gervilla with EMS and looking to increase genetic diversity and maybe see some like novel new phenotypic traits. And then also, and uh, maybe make it have more refined habits. And what I'm seeing is I have some with more refined habits that don't sucker a lot, actually. <laughs> um, <laughs> so they're not like these, they're not super aggressive in the garden. Mm-hmm. Potentially salty so we'll and some with like really good flower power. I'm also working with Magnolia ciboldii, nice, <laughs> which I'm really excited about. So with that, I've, I've got a population that I've treated with EMS. So I have a mutant population of those and they're going to get planted out in the nursery this year. So what I'm hoping to do there has increased genetic diversity of the Cebolidae that I have available to me for breeding purposes. But also hoping to reduce that height because it, it is like a straggly kind of lanky grower. And when I was walking the fields of Galtonia as a master student, I did notice one a phenotypic variation that was really interesting. Galtonia ornithogalum canicans, Cape hyacinth, it has nodding or pendulous flowers on its scape. And in the mutant population, there were some where that pedicel had actually had a mutation to cause the flower to face upright. And so I'm wondering if the same mutation will pop out in my magnolia civility population and cause those flowers that are nodding to move upright.
0: That would be cool
1: would be really cool. Then you could yeah. see that beautiful red center. right? And actually notice the flowers are on the shrub in the first place. And maybe if you reduce, another thing is if you reduce the internodes, they'd be closer together. More they clustered. Mix. Exactly. So there's that. I've also noticed it's a lot more susceptible to uh, Magnolia scale. So I've been, there's the, the hybrid Wiesneri hybrid, which is a hybrid between um, Cyboldii and Obaveta. The Obaveda that we have at the Arboretum doesn't hit Magnolia scale. So I don't know if It's just because I didn't get exposed to it. It's just like different traits or I don't know what it is. It's just something I noticed like last year. So I don't know if that's something that I could breed for.
0: Okay, cool. Those are awesome projects. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really looking
1: forward to the magnolia
0: one. I'm looking looking forward to seeing the results.
1: Me too. I'm just waiting. They're so slow.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But the other thing too is Woody Plant Breeders really have to be admired for their patience, just because yes. it takes so much time to see the fruits. And like you said, with um, Dr. Ware, you may never see some of the results of the work that you're working on. So you just have to have that faith that what yeah. you're doing is making the world a better place, a more plantastic place.
1: Yeah. You at least you, you hope that something that you do will like be fruitful in the end. So if we start, if I have a bunch of different projects then maybe five of my projects <laughs> Mm-hmm. Okay, great. <laughs> I at least know the Elm project is going to be amazing. And I, and there's a few other, there, we've got quite a few projects going as far as plant groups go. We're in a good place there.
0: Cool. I want to ask you a rapid fire question. Okay. Do you have a garden myth that most people believe that you just can't stand that you think needs to be corrected? <sighs> okay.
1: So I want someone to do more investigation in the whole juglone debate.
0: Oh, the juglone. jug-lone. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So you want to explain what juglone is first?
1: Juglone a is a secondary metabolite mm-hmm. that's produced by trees in juglone species, and the thought is that plants get affected by the juglone that is released into the soil by the roots of juglandaceous plants and it causes negative reactions in it's neighboring plants and how do you prove that there's so many factors there's so many things interacting right like in the soil and then also is it sun and shade or like what's really going on so I would like a more definitive answer because I don't know the answer to that. And that's definitely not my area of expertise at all. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but it's definitely something that comes up a lot. And I'd like to really, the, what is it, the garden professors did publish something about that.
0: Okay, and, cool. And reviewed
1: sure. all of that, yeah. yeah.
0: So I can actually say one thing about that really quickly. So whenever I was in college, I did an environmental biology degree. And so we took a plant ecology class with Dr. Sharma. And so one of the experiments that he had us do was we went out and collected black walnut leaves, uh, which of course have juggling in them on campus. And so we had a control in Petri dishes. And then I think what we did is we just like ground up the black walnut and exposed the seeds to the leaf solution that we made. And then we germinated, I think it was bean seeds, And so the beans that were in the control germinated well, but then the ones that we exposed the leaf compound to had lower germination. So this would be a really cool science project for a high school student or something to look into more. But from what I understand, juglone is more of a seed germination inhibition compound. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that it has as much of an impact like you're saying on the plants what if I went out and transplanted something underneath it so because you could see work in plant chemical warfare that they do with each other you can see preventing things underneath you from germinating would be awesome if you're reducing competition but yeah so I, I agree it would be really nice for someone to do more conclusive because then you start getting into well was it actually the juggling in the leaves or something else so yeah that's a great example yeah cool. and I
1: think yeah, yeah I think the, the germination experience is great but yeah like you're saying the the real question I think i that there are these plants that are rec- recommended as these can grow and <laughs> potentially jug-lone saturated areas.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Is that really a marketable point or <laughs> is that based on a horticulture myth? Like, I would right. like to know what is yeah.
0: true. No, that's a great, yeah, that's good. The second to last question that I always want to ask people on the Plantastic podcast is horticulture. How do we... Propagate and make more plants people? How do we engage people better with plants? Any thoughts on that? Oh,
1: that's a really good question. I think one thing that I've done, I volunteer for things like Seed Your Future. I think it's a really great nonprofit that works towards that end. But then the other thing is, I try to do it on a personal level. On Facebook, I joined a Chicago houseplant group. It's filled with a lot of hobbyist houseplant people. Houseplants have really picked up in the past year. And there's this huge houseplant craze. And I think that's amazing because that's, you know, what got me into horticulture was houseplants, a spider plant. Like I can propagate a spider plant. so easy. Mm -hmm. And the one thing I've noticed about, I think they're really passionate, enthusiastic, and I think there's a lot of opportunity to like really engage people like that. One thing I've noticed sometimes about the professional community is how they belittle that hobbyist community, and yeah. I don't think that's very productive. Yeah. I, so, so I think one thing that we could do as professionals is not belittle the hobbyists. But they make mistakes. They think crazy things. They might believe some horticultural myths, but whose fault is that? Right. It's our fault. It's not their fault. So I think the the first thing we need to do is be more aware that just because we might be some form of horticulture expert, most people are not even close to, like, understanding what horticulture is. And they shouldn't be judged. Kindness goes a long way, I think. And... So just trying to engage people in a more thoughtful way and being compassionate and recognizing that experience levels are going to vary, which is something that we all have to learn through the whole process of becoming experts, understanding that once you're an expert doesn't mean everybody else is an expert. So there's that. But aside from that, I think one thing that we need to do is really engage the folks who have the power to affect change in policy. If we're seeing a defunding of horticulture academically and we're not doing anything about it, then horticulture disappears from universities or from community colleges. Whose fault is that? We can't expect everybody else to understand what the needs are. We're the experts, right? Yes. So I think we need to be more proactive as a community and get our, our community to be more proactive about reaching out to your state representative and reaching reach out to legislators and say this is really this is a really important issue and this is why this is really important. And it's not just because I'm not trying to diminish floriculture in any way, but it's not because money making machine
0: Mm-hmm. It's
1: We have to connect people to the value of horticulture landscapes at the more fundamental level. It's not about money. It's about our mental health.
0: Mm-hmm. It's about
1: our physical health. And it's about like our overall societal well-being. And it's about our future. And I think we need to like really figure out a way to communicate the value of horticulture beyond the food that's on our plate and beyond the flowers that you buy at the grocery store. I think that is something that we really need to work on as a community.
0: Good job. Love that. And I love to how you connected it back too, to what you were saying earlier about how you never know how you treat other people or what you say to other people is going to have an impact on their lives. Yeah. Great. Last question. Okay. Where can people find you?
1: Where can people find me? So yes. I'm at the board. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Okay. Where can people learn more about your projects and uh, what you're doing in the professional world?
1: So you can, you literally can just Google Tim Shearer Morton Arboretum and it'll be there. It, it, there is a page through the website that kind of lists out different projects or like themes um, of what we're working on and different types of research that we do. The other website, as far as some of the plants goes, is chicagolandgrows.org. Okay. So that's our, it's a 501c3 nonprofit, and it's our plant introduction program. And it was developed back in the 80s, partnership between the Morton Arboretum, Chicago Botanic Garden, and the Ornamental Growers Association of Northern Illinois. You can go to that website website. And you can find all of the trees and the shrubs and the herbaceous perennials that have been introduced through that brand, um, along with their plant release bulletins that are available through PDF along with photos that are free to use. And I'm also on Instagram, um, <laughs> My handle is Kim in transit, and I post a lot of what I'm doing at the Arboretum, whether it's breeding or propagation, working on the field. I also post a lot of my travels, horticultural travels, and there's a lot of stuff in there with Mabel Jones. (laughs) Um, She's a star. Um, and uh, and then of course, yeah, I'm on Facebook. That's where you can find me.
0: Great, thank you, Kim, so much for talking with me today on the Plantastic Podcast. Until next time, right? Yeah,
1: thank you so much for the opportunity.
0: Yeah, definitely. Thanks so much for listening today. Do you have questions or comments? You can visit theplantasticpodcast.com for show notes and to reach out and say hi. Remember plants can't talk, but we can. The plant world needs people to share how wonderful these green organisms are. So tell someone a fun fact about plants, make it simple, make it remarkable, and most of all, make it plantastic. Until next time, keep growing.